morning, beloved. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brother Grant and Diana for lifting up our voices to the Lord of grace who is eminently worthy of our praise. Absence does make the heart grow fonder, and I did miss you last week while I was away. It sounded like a great time of gathering and of fellowship. And you know what? We should miss each other. It's well that we miss each other because we were designed and created to be in fellowship with one another. And when we're not, something is missing, isn't it? Well, I received the call this week, only a few hours after a dear child of the Rogers family. As most of you know, their 15-month-old daughter, Lucy, suffered a tragic event and was taken home to be with Jesus. I want to thank Brother Harold for leading you in prayer for this family last Sunday. Uh, I wept in my hotel room, as I'm sure many of you did at home as well. Thank you. You know, when heart-wrenching events like this occur, it raises profound and deep questions in the life of even mature believers. Because it's unnatural. It's unnatural in its order, and it brings up emotions and questions for people. And we could, build, we could fill books with all that could be pondered in these painful events, but if I could share just a few thoughts about these matters that we're all considering in our hearts today, I know I am. You know, I mentioned the unnaturalness that we feel with these losses, that uneasy feeling that you have, beloved, when confronted with death like this, that unnatural sense that we experience when lamenting this loss. And I want to remind us, it should feel that way. It should feel that way. Any death, though it can be celebrated by the believer because of the promises in Scripture, when we absorb the loss of a baby or a young child, and really any death at all, we have this knot inside of us that this is wrong. This is not right, don't we? And do you want to know why we feel that way, saints? It's because it's not right. Let us remember we were not created in Genesis 1 for death. Death is the most common unnatural thing around us when someone passes you may have been even elderly and people think it's the natural course of life no it's not it's highly unnatural death became become a because of sin not because it's the natural course of life we were created as eternal beings made to walk with god in intimate fellowship that's what's natural that's why we mourn this is why we get that knot in our stomach, because we were not created for death or to witness death. And yet it's all around us. We see it so often and we think it's just part of life. But life is what we received in the garden in Genesis 1. That was when God saw that it was good. Everything we had and experienced in that garden, that fellowship, that intimacy, that life, that's what we were actually made for. That is what is actually natural death is not natural it's a consequence of sin and a perversion of the natural the death of a precious young one like dear lucy brings it even closer to home because it not only violates our sense of death when we were created for life but it violates our sense of order as well a parent should never have to bury a child so what hope do we have what hope does the rogers family have this morning they have much hope. It causes many to ask the question and to ponder the inevitable end here, asking, where do babies? 
Where do young people or those who have never mentally matured, where do they go when they leave this earth? What does scripture have to say about this? Where is Lucy right now? Well, the short answer is that she's in heaven. And I know that people like to say this maybe out of sentiment or out of kindness, but we have so much more to offer than that. Scripture speaks clearly to this. So we have real hope. Not a wish and a prayer or a nice thought or sentiment. God's word speaks to the loss of little Lucy and to where she is right now. Now, This also applies to any couple who may have suffered a miscarriage as well. It's still your baby and you will see them again. If there's been the taking of life through an abortion, there's forgiveness for that in Christ and you will see that baby again. Some struggle with the fact that we're all born into original sin. This sin, Adam, our federal head, is laid on us from conception. Sinfulness is not a condition that comes upon people when they're old enough to make willful and bad choices. It's a state that is present in every human being, even from the womb. Our innate sinfulness is what produces sinful choices. So how is it that they can be brought into the presence of a holy God? When David says in Psalm 51 that he was born in iniquity, that he was born in sin. We have many places in scripture that we can look to. So many that I thought about giving a topical sermon on this heartbreaking topic, but I think I'll share just one this morning. We know that King David had many children. One of them was a result, was conceived with Bathsheba as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba. The Lord would take this child back from David Let us look to David's journey during this time. There's no need to turn there, but this narrative is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we see that when David and Bathsheba's baby was born, the child was already on death's door. And we see David crying out in great agony for the life of his child, as we all would. 2 Samuel records that David lay all night on the ground, his face buried in the dirt, as he begged and pled with God to spare the life of this baby boy. Even the servants of David tried to get him to at least rise up and take a little bit of bread and water, but he refused to the point that they thought David might just lay there until he wastes away. And tragically, we see the baby died seven days after being born. But here's where the story begins to turn. His servants watched David moan and weep and cry out for the life of his child. It was such a sight that when the baby actually died, they wanted to hide it from David because they thought he would be so overcome with grief that he might even kill himself. That's how deep a place David was in. But watch what happens. We can see the scene. The servants are there in the background and they're whispering to one another. And David can hear the murmurings and he asked them, is my baby boy gone? They said, yes. And at this point, they're probably ready to bum rush their own king to stop him from doing something rash at the news. But what does David do to everyone's amazement? David gets up. He washes his face. He anoints himself. He changes his clothes. He goes to worship and he says, make me some dinner. I'm starving. Can you imagine the look on the servant's face? Complete bewilderment. 
They thought he might take his own life. And here David jumps up, he cleans up, he changes his clothes, he goes to church and he orders a steak. Finally, the servants muster up the courage to say, what is this you have done? In other words, are you okay? Is this some form of insanity? Has David really flipped a lid here? Here you fasted and you cried out to God and you mourned while your child was alive. But now your child has died. You arose and you ate food. This is all backwards. David replied, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child might live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. David loved his little boy. He cried out to God for his life. Yet when the child died, David changed. Why? Why was David's mourning and deep sorrow replaced with instant hope? Because David knew. David knew I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David knew with absolute confidence where he was going and where his baby boy was. There's no question. Complete faith. This was not the reaction of a man with a wing and a prayer. This was rock solid confidence. David knew the scriptures and what it says about babies, young children, those who are never able to mature mentally to the point of accountability. Scripture speaks to this. Miscarriages, abortion. Scripture speaks to this. God does not hold their imputed sin from Adam to their account. They have never chosen wickedness or sin, though their nature was born in sin. See, these precious little ones or those with mental handicaps are not saved because they're sinless. They're saved because God is gracious, because he's eminently good. And these individuals have committed no willful or premeditated sin. Job describes a stillborn infant as being an instant paradise in Job 3, 11 to 19. Moses as well in Deuteronomy 1, 39. Jeremiah 19, 4 through 7 calls the sacrificed children innocent to God. Innocent. To Jonah, God calls those in Nineveh who cannot tell their left hand from their right. Do you know what that means? They're talking about children. Babies, those who are mentally handicapped, they are objects here of God's great pity and mercy. I could go on and on. There's so many examples. Every salvation ever wrought in history was a function of God's grace, not of works. Babies who die go to heaven not because they were sinless. They go to heaven because God is gracious. It's all of grace, just like our salvation. So we need not contemplate empty sentiment. Or that God is merely sovereign and good in all that he does, though that is certainly yes and amen. We don't just have to leave it at that. Scripture speaks to this. We have a real hope. As sure as a believer in Christ is secure in him, so is little Lucy today. We have God's word on it. Can we all say amen? Amen. 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 We'll continue to pray for the Rogers family, please. Well, we're excited this morning to begin a new three-part series titled The Great Trilemma. Dilution, delusional, demonic, or divine. And we'll break from the series for Resurrection Sunday for Easter, and we'll finish the following Sunday. Well, this three-part series will take us to the end of chapter three, so we're really making some headway here, right? 
We left off in Mark with Jesus completing and rounding out his choosing of the 12 disciples, didn't we? That would become the 12 apostles. Such a remarkable, eclectic bunch, these 12 disciples, that you've never seen under one roof together. We had revolutionary zealots like Simon and people like Matthew who were traitors to the Jews and Simon who wanted to kill the Jews. All right. Who Matthew, who served the Romans oppressively collecting taxes for them. Simon, the zealot would have killed Matthew outside of Christ. And yet we see these two together. We saw John called a son of thunder, meaning a son of anger and agitation in our text, who would eventually become known as the apostle of love after his time with Jesus. And of course, we examine Judas Iscariot and how he was never merely called Judas Iscariot, as we see in verse 19 above. Judas Iscariot, he was who betrayed him. He was forever defined by what he had done. All outside of Christ. For those who are outside of Christ, it is by their works that we will be examined and judged in eternity with a certain and sure sentence that's already decreed. We all have sinful works in our past. We all do. But the difference between Peter or John and Judas is whether or not your works are admissible evidence in the eternal court of law. For Judas, his works are fully admissible. And by them, he will be judged as one who betrayed him. For those who are in Christ, your works are inadmissible in the father's court. Only the righteousness of Christ is allowed or accepted into evidence for the believer. And I think we can all agree that that is very good news. That's the gospel. That's the euangelion. That's the good news. Your prior sin is inadmissible. Praise the Lord. Cast as far as the east is from the west. So if you need a renewing this morning of the joy of your salvation, that is right there, saints. It's right there. The psalmist asks in Psalm 51 that the Lord restore unto him the joy of that salvation. Because we need reminding. We need reminding. We're all prone to forget or to let it grow stale or to let it be drowned out by the noise around us. We are a people marked by joy of our salvation this morning. Well, as we approach our text, we're before driving, diving into the title here and where we're going in our three-part series, we've come upon a very, very unique literary device in Mark's writing. It's, a unique to, it's so unique to Mark that we don't find this in many other places. So our three-part series, which will, which will comprise the verses 20 through 35, is part of what we call a Markin sandwich. That's right, a sandwich. All right. What Mark does is he, here is he will take a story or a scene and he'll jam another story right into the middle of it, breaking the first one into two. Now, I will say with all honesty for expositors of scripture, they're a most frustrating thing. How do we preach such a thing? How do we make it flow? Well, let me first show you what I'm talking about so you can better understand the Markin sandwich. Our text this morning is verse 20 and 21. This is the top piece of the bread of the sandwich. I'll read the text, Mark 3, 20 through 21. And he came home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. So the other piece of the bread starts at verse 31. I'll just read verse 31 along with 21. You can just follow along. So verse 21 says, and when his people heard this, they went 
out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Verse 31 now, look at that. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. You see what happened there? You see how both of those verses, 21 and 31, flow together as one story? It's because they are the same story. But Mark cuts the bread into two slices, and he puts the meat into the verse, which is verse 22 through 30. Can you see that divided up in your scriptures? So our three-part series is bread, meat, bread. Can we see that? Some pastors deal with these literary speed bumps by kind of putting the bread back together and they preach 20 and 21 and then they skip down and they do 31 through 35. They pull them together. The problem I see with that is that that's not how Mark wrote it. So who am I to separate out the meat and the bread? However disruptive it may be, we are going to eat this sandwich. Okay, so I want but I want you to see and understand this phenomenon. Okay, because it's a hallmark of Mark and we will see more of them as we move through the gospel. So with that said, I'll reread our text for today and we'll dive in. Mark 3, 20 through 21. And he came home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for texts such as these. To see what people thought of you, what your own family thought of you at times, encourages us. A servant is not greater than their master. We ask that this series be a time of incredible encouragement and deeper roots of conviction to manner all weather of storm that we may see. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Belfast, Ireland, in the year 1898, a boy was born to A.J. and Flora Lewis. And he didn't like his name very much, so he asked that his mom and his dad call him Jack. And he was tutored in French and Latin by his mother who died when this boy named Clive was only 10 years old. His father was a minister, but by the time a very intelligent Clive was 15 years old, he had rejected the faith of his parents and he had embraced a worldview of atheism. He was immediately drawn to academics as he grew. And while he was wounded in the Great War, Clive returned to be a lecturer at the University College in Oxford. Clive was done with God and all that it entailed. In fact, in his own words, he was, quote, very angry at God for not existing about that for a second. The awful effects of the war, the seeming chaos and the randomness of it all, combined with an intellectual atheism, made Clive resistant to any talk of the Christian faith. But God's grace, when he pursues you, he always gets his man. Always. You cannot run, no matter how smart you may be, no matter how jaded your worldview might be, or the horrors you might have witnessed, none are a match for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Well, much like everyone here, God put believers in Clive's path, who challenged his militant atheism. Let us remember that everyone in here is here because someone cared enough to share the gospel with us. God uses people. And Clive was eventually born again. In later writing of his conversion, Clive lamented, quote, you must picture me alone in that room. 
night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who so earnestly desire, who, whom I so earnestly desired to not meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Well, you may know Jack or Clive Lewis better as C.S. Lewis, famed author of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity. And while it did not begin during C.S. Lewis's lifetime, a very common but sinister belief pervaded the Western world concerning the person of Jesus Christ. The belief that Jesus was merely a wise teacher, along with Buddha or Confucius, Jesus was just a man, but a very wise and a very wonderful teacher of men. Now, you'll hear various stripes and iterations of that today. There's nothing new. Satan is not going to present in his most insidious form with a frontal assault of Jesus and his hatred for him. No, the much more common tactic is to adore and to love him, not as God, of course, but as a wonderful teacher who is to be revered. Heap accolades upon Christ, but do not let him be God. Love and even adore his teaching, but question or ignore his divinity. Few will be so bold, even today, to attack the person of Christ in a frontal assault. That's far too daring. Far easier is to revere him, but not worship him. The world is happy to accept a Jesus that does not claim exclusivity or divinity. But this was and is the view that pervaded the culture. C.S. Lewis was very much an intellectual. And as he began hearing people espouse these views, they began to trouble this scholar's mind. A logical fallacy was beginning to take form. See, as Lewis began devouring scripture, he soon began to see the irreconcilable nature of Jesus as merely being a good teacher and that of being divine. No, based upon what we see here in scripture, Jesus claimed to be God. So if he was not God, this man, Jesus, was either demonic or he was delusional. And if he is neither demonic nor delusional, he must be divine. Or put in a more popular frame by Josh McDowell, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. This is what C.S. Lewis coined the term, coined as the term, the great trilemma. The great trilemma. Dilemma, of course, is a choice between two, right? I have a dilemma. Which one should I choose? A trilemma, you guessed it, is a choice between three. C.S. Lewis rightly surmised that based upon the writings in Scripture, the recordings of the gospel on the words of Jesus, if Jesus was not divine, he was either delusional or demonic. If he was not Lord, he was either a liar or a lunatic. The notion that Jesus could merely be a good teacher is not an option that's given to us. It's not even an optional category in the great trilemma. In one of his crowning works, Mere Christianity, which you've, if you've not read, I would highly commend to you, Lewis addresses this fallacy that Jesus can merely be a good teacher. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Close quote. Now, that's a lengthy introduction, but one that we must grasp hold of. Not only that we understand this trilemma as we work our way through our series, but examine how this might deepen the resolve of our own faith. Today, we'll look at the first part of the trilemma, the accusation or the possibility that Jesus was delusional. Seems pretty silly on its face, but that's going to be the accusation we're going to see. Beginning with our text, verse 20, Mark 3, verse 20. And he came home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat a meal. Well, this is the first time we see Jesus returning home with a full ensemble of his disciples. All 12 are now in place. And where is home? Home is, of course, Capernaum. And the language here used seems to want to want to hearken us back to Peter's home. This is likely where we're talking about here. And it's a common theme of Mark. Once again, we see what? The crowd. We see the crowd, don't we? Don't we? And recall that the crowd in Mark is often portrayed as a hindrance. It's an impediment to ministry. That's certainly what we see here. With Jesus' fame having spread far and wide, the throng, or what we call the press. The press, as it's called, from was very commonplace from the crowds. And it records that they could not even eat a meal. And while we're talking about the action of eating here, this is really all-encompassing. All right, it's telling us that the crowd was impeding the normal functions of life, the coming and going, the eating, the sleeping, the relaxing, all the normality of life were cut off for Jesus because of the crowd. And if you recall our scene last two weeks ago, three weeks ago of the thousands thronging Jesus in Mark 3, 7 through 12 at the Sea of Galilee. Those who brought their sick and their lame from every region. The raw determination of those people who wanted their lives back because it had been stolen by illness or by the demonic. No doubt there were parents there. Parents there as well who had children with maladies, diseases and palsy. And what wouldn't you do to get your child in front of this man that people are saying can heal your child? There are mama bears in here that would climb the highest mountain and charge through 10 men. I guarantee it. Well, we need to understand the need, the intensity that we talked about. It's possible that the throng of people here are some of the same people that were at the sea and they merely decided to go back up where they were told Jesus was from and wait for him to return. Others are probably from Capernaum. The point here is that the press of humanity, the intensity is still the same. It has not abated. 
But the heart of these two verses is in verse 21. Mark 3, verse 21. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Well, here we see part one of our trilemma, our trilemma, delusional. But before we get there, let's look at who the players are here. There's so much to glean. We begin. And when his own people heard this, some of your translations might read a little differently. But who are we talking about? Who are we talking about here? Very simply, we're talking about Jesus family from Nazareth, his father, his mother. We know of at least four half brothers and two half sisters as well. There's a Catholic teaching that Mary was a perpetual virgin. I don't think they read their Bibles. We see clearly in Scripture that she certainly was not. Jesus was likely one of seven born to Mary. And you can see Mark 6, verse 3 for that. But these must have been some very interesting family dynamics. We all have those in our families and even in our immediate families who are not followers of Christ, don't we? Did Mary know who Jesus was? Yes, I still don't understand the question in the Christmas song, Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. The angel told Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary knew. Not a whole lot of gray area there. The angel told Mary, and we know that Joseph was a righteous man and he would eventually believe Mary. So here we have two believing parents with eyewitness testimony of the identity of their son. And unfortunately, all evidence at this point was that Jesus siblings were not believers. Jesus lived in and around them for 30 years before leaving Nazareth. If anyone should know the truth, it's them, no? No. Consider this, parents. If you have grown children or a grown child who is away from Christ and are tempted to ever allow the dark cloud of blame to ever descend upon your conscience. Jesus' own brothers. We know their names. James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. Your parents are Mary and Joseph. You grew up 30 years with Jesus by your side. You watched him lead a sinless childhood, teenage, young adult life, never a single word out of place. And yet they did not believe that he was the Christ. I had that boy in church every Sunday of their life. We lived the gospel in our home. And yet. Do you think Mary ever talked to Mary ever talked about what happened around the dinner table? I would think so. I'm sure she testified to what she saw and who their half-brother was. Those seeds were planted in those brothers and sisters their entire life. And what do we see? There's hope. There's hope, parents. Acts 1.14 These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Praise the Lord. G James, Jesus' brother, would become a leader in the church. And he would write an epistle. Jude, his half-brother, would write an epistle as well. Don't ever give up on praying for those children. They may be 40 when the seeds take hold. But pray, pray. 
Nobody had a better example and testimony than growing up with Jesus himself. With Mary and Joseph testifying to who he was. Yet it was not until God sovereignly opened their eyes that their brothers and that Jesus' brothers and sisters came to faith. If perfect parenting were the, was the essential ingredient to raising godly kids, please consider what God's first kids, Adam and Eve, did. They had God as their father, and they sinned, plunging the entire world into darkness. Nobody looked at God the Father and said, eh, it must have been the parenting. Don't let the enemy sow confusion or doubt or guilt. While mistakes and missteps in parenting can contribute to a child's choices, they're not causative. While they are influential and they're important, they're not ultimately determinative. So moving on in our text, it says that his family went out to take custody of him. This word used here for custody, it's a very strong word. It means to capture, to lay hold of, to arrest even. This is a no kidding, drag you out by your tunic kind of usage. Why? What is prompting this visceral reaction from Jesus' family? What do we need to see here? Or rather, what's missing? Well, that's part of the problem. There are many things that happen that are not recorded. Right? We know in the Gospel of John, he ends it. He's saying Jesus did so many things that if we were to put them all in a book, the library couldn't even contain it. So there's a lot of things that we don't know, but there's a lot of things we do as we seek to fill in the blanks. And it's easy to see. When Jesus would have left his hometown of Nazareth, number one, many of his family would have thought he lost his mind. It's kind of like a young man or a woman or a couple going and telling their unbelieving parents that they're headed to the jungles of Papua New Guinea as missionaries. Are you crazy? Now, Jesus had left. He's left. He started his ministry and word is starting to filter back to Nazareth that your kid is raising up some serious dust out there. And for what they're hearing, R.C. Sproul writes this, quote, he seemed to be calling down on himself and everyone around him the wrath of the Jewish religious leaders. They were concerned that when the authorities decided to crack down on Jesus, they would also crack down on everyone close to him. They saw him as being out of his mind because he was willing to stand up to the Pharisees, the scribes, and the rabbis, end quote. Well, now to add insult to injury, remember that when Jesus went back to Nazareth very briefly at the beginning of his ministry, he basically rained down verbal fire on them, didn't he? Recall, he, he rebuked his neighbors so sharply and hardly they wanted to kill him in Luke chapter 4. Nazareth was a few hundred people. It was only a few hundred people. It was small. His family would have watched this scene in horror, in embarrassment, and in shame. The family name was going down the tubes if they didn't get a hold of Jesus. As one theologian put it, it was time for his family to save Jesus from himself. The last part of the text, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Some translations say Jesus had lost his mind. I wish this was a translation issue, but it's not. It sounds as irreverent as it is. The word here, existemi, it means to literally have gone insane, to be outside of yourself. You have lost your mind. Jesus, you're going to get yourself killed. You're going to get yourself killed and you're going to get anyone who knows you arrested. You've brought shame on our entire household with your extremist 
preaching. I'm curious how many in here this morning can relate with their Savior. We should. If you live a life that is un- that unashamedly points to Christ, you will be called insane by this world. You will be told that you're out of your mind and that your gospel is foolish nonsense and you're a simpleton for believing it. And in fact, today, you're a dangerous simpleton for believing it. You're a fanatic and your family will be the first to tell you, won't they? They sure will. Saints, please see this. Jesus himself was called a lunatic by his own family. They thought he was so crazy that he was going to self-destruct. That's what the text says. What's the heart of this? What do we do with this here? Where does this come from in Jesus' family? Because as a believer, you have to read, you, you've read the first three chapters of Mark so far, and you've been able to say yes and amen, right? Everything sounds good to me. That's because you've been born again. To the unbelieving heart, this is nonsense. They did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. He was not divine. He was delusional. He wasn't Lord. He was a lunatic. We need to be made ortho. What does ortho mean? Ortho means right or straight. An orthodontist makes your teeth right. An orthopedist makes your spine right. Orthodoxy means what then? Doxy is doctrine. Right doctrine. Guess what? We first need orthocardia. Cardia means heart. We need orthocardia. We need a right or a new heart. So when you combine orthodoxy with orthocardia, you're going to get orthopraxy, meaning right practice. And orthopronea, meaning right thinking. Right thinking. So you're going to come out with orthopraxy, right practice. Orthopronea, right thinking. That is why you can read up to Mark 3 and say yes and amen. And Jesus' family can look at Jesus and say, you've lost your mind. If you have someone in your life, or perhaps your own self, whose orthopraxy, your practice in life is off consistently, whose orthopronao, your thinking, is consistently off, we need to examine your orthocardia. Then check your orthodoxy. And your answer will be there. The answer is in the orthocardia. The answer is in the orthodoxy. We must be born again. We need a new and a right heart, which will give us a desire and a longing for right doctrine, which will give us right thinking and right practice. They will think you've lost your senses. They've lost your mind. Yes, indeed, the prophet who was sent to anoint Jehu. Remember in 2 Kings, he was called a mad fellow. Paul, when he's speaking to Festus, what did Festus tell him? Paul, much learning has driven you mad. If you're zealous for Christ, the charge against you should be the same. And yet, isn't it interesting that to this world, the charge of zealous passion applies to no other area of life to the world. J.C. Ryle writes, quote, If a man injures his health by study, or excessive attention to business, or some other secular vocation, no fault is found. He said he's a diligent man. But if he wears himself out with preaching, or spends his whole time in doing good to souls, the cry is raised, he's a zealot. He's overly righteous. The world has not changed. The things of the Spirit are always foolishness to the natural man. 
And the gospel will divide. It will divide. Jesus told his disciples, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Luke 12. Indeed, John 16, 2, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. You're crazy. Go get a hold of that man. It's for his own good. Turn him in. What do you think this means to believers in the underground church right here this morning, today, as we speak? They're abandoned by their family at best. At worst, they're turned in to be arrested. How many of those family members believe they were doing it for their own good? Their family members have been caught up in some sort of zealous cult. Well, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Even the psalmist writes, Psalm 27.10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. If the world thought our Savior was crazy and a zealot, why are you exempt from that title? A servant is not greater than his master. Until we see the cardiologist, until we are made orthocardia, our thinking and our practice will remain clouded in darkness. A Christian does not claim to have secret knowledge. We're not Gnostics, but we need eyes to see what's right in front of our eyes. God gives the sight. God gives the new heart. And until he gives that, Jesus will be delusional. And all who follow Jesus will be delusional. But in a moment, at the flashpoint of conversion, where we cry out to be made new from the filth of our life, Jesus is now precious to us beyond words. He is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as one people this morning to confess that you are Lord. Lord, that you have come overcome all barriers in our lives, all intellectual arguments, all heart arguments. Lord, you have cast them aside as if they are nothing. And you have captured our hearts and our affections with irresistible grace. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would be reminded of this. We ask that the joy of our salvation would be restored. We ask that we would be encouraged as we confront problems even in families or with friends, Lord, for our faith that would tell us we're delusional. But Lord, we know that you were told the same and a servant is not greater than his master. Lord, be with us this week. Strengthen us and hearten us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.